Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Have you ever looked up at the full moon and been like, whoa, yeah, me too. The moon sometimes feels like it's following us, like it's watching us, like it's connecting us across distances. The gravitational pull of the moon affects the ocean's tides, defining many of the cycles that we experience on Earth. Even before humans had a modern scientific understanding of the moon's relationship to the Earth and to the greater solar system, we have always known that there was something about that glowing orb up there. It's no wonder why many religions have worshipped the moon, or created gods or goddesses to represent it. It's also no wonder that people have questioned the moon's power, wondering if it can control us in ways that may be more evil than good. Witches have long been associated with the moon, and the word lunacy, another word for going crazy, comes from lunar, or the belief that the moon can cause insanity. And then, of course, there is the creature most intimately connected to the full moon, the werewolf. Some people believe that the full moon triggers the werewolf's transformation, that being a werewolf is a curse, and that the only escape is death by a silver bullet. But what is a werewolf, really? Is it half human, half wolf? Is it a human that can turn into a wolf? A wolf with the soul of a person buried somewhere deep down? And even though it also may scare us, why does the idea of turning into a powerful beast and going on a rampage also sound kind of exciting? I'm Elise Parisian, and we'll be talking all about the infamous werewolf on this episode of Unspookable. is a human, but they get bit by other werewolves or wolves. A werewolf is a person that come will come out at a full moon, and they will turn into a big, hairy thing that looks like a wolf, but it stands like a person. I think werewolves would look like um these, like, kind of like a dog, like with a face of a dog and then like these sharp teeth and at a full moon they will turn into this wolf-like thing wearing pants and it looks like it has a beard look like wolves but in human form they you they come when there's a full moon they usually come out they just go in like a, a hidden place and then they just turn into one. And then when it's 12, then they go, The word werewolf comes from the Old English were, meaning man, and wolf. 
This supernatural condition is also known as lycanthropy, from the Greek root words anthrope, meaning of mankind, and lycos, meaning wolf. The root word anthrope is present in many of our English words today, like anthropology, the study of mankind. Though we may see them as technically representing the same creature, the word lycanthropy goes back much further than our more modern use of the word werewolf, and often had a much broader meaning. In ancient Greece and Rome, historians and storytellers referenced men turning into wolves for many different reasons. In his long book, Histories, the Greek historian Herodotus mentions that the citizens of a place called Scythia could all transform into wolves for a few days out of every year. In Greek mythology, a man named Lycaon angers the god Zeus by serving him a meal made from the remains of a sacrificed boy. As punishment, the enraged Zeus turns Lycaon and his sons into wolves. In Metamorphoses, an epic poem that covers the whole history of the world, the Roman poet Ovid, in one part, describes men who have a deep connection to the natural world and are able to live in the forest as wolves. The mythology and storytelling of the ancient world was often a direct representation of the religious beliefs of the time. The imagery of human-animal hybrids, or of shape-shifting between human and animal, was present in a lot of the world's ancient religions. Today, we may not associate major religions with animals necessarily, but for ancient civilizations in Mesopotamia, Egypt, Greece, and Rome, as early as 4000 BC, their origin stories, rituals, and their gods and goddesses often contained deep connections to animals. Last episode, we talked about the Mesopotamian goddess Aragatis, who became part fish. She was the goddess of childbirth and seen as a protector of her people. It's possible her association with fish and water came from people thinking about water as the source of life. In stories about the Greek god Zeus, he appears to many humans as various animals, a bull, an eagle, a bear, or a swan, believing that humans wouldn't be able to handle his god form, but that he could win them over as an animal. The Egyptians honored many animals as representations of their gods on Earth, like cats, jackals, beetles, and ravens. Later, around 1000 AD, the Norse people, who many of us know as Vikings, would use the symbolism of wolves in stories about warriors, epic battles, and even in their myth that foretold the end of the world. In this story, known as Ragnarok, two wolves named Skoll and Hati have been chasing the sun and the moon endlessly across the sky. When they catch them, the world as we know it will come to an end. These earlier civilizations have some of the best-known examples of polytheism, meaning their religion worships more than one god. Monotheism, or the worship of one god, is more common today than it was in the ancient world, and is now practiced in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, among other religions. Once Christianity started to spread around Europe, around the 300s, people practicing religions with many gods or goddesses were referred to as pagans. The word pagan was meant to suggest that people who followed these religions were more rustic or even less civilized because of their connections to the earth, to animals, or other parts of nature. 
Some Christians even thought that pagans practiced animal worship, as in, Christians thought that pagans believed that a wolf was a god, where more often the truth was that pagans were celebrating a wolf as a symbol relating to the power of the gods. Animal symbolism is common in many religions, even in Christianity if you consider the way some believers may associate the figure of Jesus Christ with the symbol of a lamb. When I think of wolves, I think furry but sh- and strong too. And like they have, like they're, they like just want to eat. When I think of wolves, I think of gray. Some people would think like cute and fuzzy, but I find them more like still fuzzy but more ragged. Wolves can bite. They also... They do have all the features of a werewolf, and you usually hear werewolves and wolves, so they could be real. Just nobody knows. The religious and cultural significance of the wolf in particular is present especially in areas around present-day Western Asia, Northern Europe, and North America. Which makes sense, because the most common type of wolf, the gray wolf, has lived in those areas for thousands of years. So naturally, people would incorporate this animal they came across often into their worldview. Especially before humans had covered lots of land with large cities, seeing a gray wolf may have been a much more average occurrence, and perhaps an occurrence to be feared, depending on the situation. It was said that the city of Rome was founded by two brothers who were nursed as babies by a wolf. In most Slavic, Germanic, and Baltic cultures, wolves are associated with warriors, their power called upon to aid a fighter in battle, or to guard the most sacred or powerful sites, like the mythological wolves that guarded the Viking afterlife, called Valhalla. Native North Americans in regions of the present-day Arctic, Canada, and the United States include wolves in their culture and mythology. First Nations people, like the Naskapi, try to emulate the wolf in hunting, viewing them as guides. The Danaina believed wolves were once men, and thought of them as brothers. According to the Pawnee tribe, living in the regions of the Midwestern United States, the wolf was the first creature to experience death. In one Pawnee creation myth, the wolf star was enraged at not having been invited to attend a council on how the earth should be made and sent a wolf to steal the whirlwind bag belonging to the storm that comes out of the west, which contained the first humans. When the humans were freed from the bag, they killed the wolf, bringing death into the world for the first time. For people in the regions we mentioned, it made sense for them to choose a wolf as a symbol to use in stories. But people who did not live in regions where wolves are common may have other examples of humans turning into animals or shapeshifting. Indian mythology tells of the Naga, shapeshifters that can be part human, part deadly snake, similar to a king cobra, and may appear in either form, or as a hybrid. In Chinese mythology, there is a fox spirit with nine tails that can turn into a beautiful woman. In Somalia and Eastern Africa, tales of a hyena man who used a magic stick to turn himself into a hyena by night but returned to his human form by dawn. 
So what makes humans imagine what it would be like to shapeshift into these specific animals? Despite being very different, many of the creatures we mentioned are powerful, dangerous, and even beautiful in their own ways. It's not like humans are imagining themselves shapeshifting into an ant or a rat, usually. There is something attractive about imagining you could have an animal power, even if that power would lead you to be deadly, like in the case of a wolf and the idea of shapeshifting into a werewolf. What qualities do you think of when you think of a wolf? Sharp teeth to tear through flesh? Speed to hunt down your prey? For some of the cultures we have talked about, these qualities were likely celebrated, especially for warriors. So how did the idea of shapeshifting into a wolf leave the realm of ritual and religion and come to be associated with horror and curse? Well, it could have a lot to do with the way paganism was viewed once Christianity was the primary religion in Europe. The Middle Ages and the early modern period saw a rise in people believing in the devil and also the things that the devil could supposedly do, such as make deals with people to give them magical powers like shapeshifting. In the 14 and 1500s, as panic about witches began to spread, people also began to fear references to any magical ability or worship of the natural world that could be seen as anti-Christian. So what proof did people have that werewolves existed and should be feared? There are some real-life medical conditions that may have once been mistaken as signs that someone was a werewolf. People who have hypertrichosis, for instance, often grow unusually long hair all over their face and body. It's possible that someone with this condition in the past might have been seen as turning into an animal if their facial features and skin were covered up by hair that was inches longer than what people thought was normal. The condition known as porphyria can make people very sensitive to light, able to go out only after dark. Porphyria can also cause anxiety, seizures, and other symptoms which before modern medicine would have most likely been explained as some sort of possession, witchcraft, or supernatural ailment. In 1521, Two Frenchmen, Pierre Burgot and Michel Verdun, claimed to have an ointment that could turn them into wolves, making them powerless over their desire to kill. They were suspected of making a pact with the devil to receive this magic ointment. Then, in 1589, a German man named Peter Stube claimed to have a belt made of wolf skin that gave him the power to turn into a wolf. He said when he put on the belt, his body would bend into the lupine shape, he would grow extra teeth, and he craved the taste of human blood. Today, we would hopefully understand that any person making these claims is in need of care. But in the 1500s, at the height of paranoia about witches and other magical beings, people accused of being werewolves were often tortured or burned at the stake. Superstition was so powerful back then that people really believed they needed fire to destroy the traces of evil in those they suspected of magical or supernatural abilities. This attitude brings up the question, what do some people fear today that may lead them to treat other humans badly in the year 2019? From our perspective now, we can look at people's actions from over 400 years ago and think, they were so dumb! 
Why would they hurt someone who is claiming to be a werewolf? Werewolves don't exist, and those men clearly needed help. But 400 years from now, what will people look back on that we are saying about our fellow humans? What will they question? What records will they have of things that we did to others out of fear or misunderstanding or an unwillingness to change? At the height of the witch hunts in Europe, around the late 1400s to late 1600s, people began to circulate ideas about what a werewolf was and how it came to be. People said that you could become a werewolf using the enchanted skin of a wolf, by being bitten by someone who already had the curse, or by certain ritual spells performed under a full moon. Some said that werewolves or other shapeshifters could only exist in connection to a witch or a sorcerer. By the 1800s, when the genre known as gothic horror began to be popular, some of the details we associate with versions of werewolves that you might see in a horror movie became established. Like the idea that all a werewolf wanted to do when he transformed was kill, and that the only thing that could stop a werewolf at the height of its power was a silver weapon or a silver bullet. It was also around this time, while the adults were reading potentially more frightening novels about Dracula, werewolves, and other monsters, that ideas about the danger of wolf creatures were also making their ways into stories for children. Many of you have heard or read stories of the Little Red Riding Hood or the Three Little Pigs, right? Though they are very different stories, the lesson is kind of similar when you think about it. Beware wolves approaching you in the woods or knocking at your door, because pretty much all they want to do is eat you. Whenever I watch Harry Potter, or like read Harry Potter and about like Professor Lupin, I, when he turns into like a werewolf. I've seen werewolves when Dipper dressed up as one on Gravity Falls. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman? Yeah, I've seen that one. And the Wolfman from Hotel Transylvania. While early horror novels, and then later films like The Wolfman in 1941, may have portrayed the version of the werewolf that is bloodthirsty and horrible, our current times tend to depict these creatures with much more variety. A variety that is possible because we seem to love stories with supernatural themes. Perhaps we're not too different than our ancient ancestors in their myths, huh? Whether we realize it or not, we owe the recent burst of pop culture with supernatural themes in part to a little story called Twilight. Have you heard of Twilight? Maybe you know someone who's read it, or you've seen the movies. Twilight follows the story of teenager Bella Swan and her love, Edward, who just happens to be a vampire. Bella's friend Jacob is a teenager too, and also a werewolf. The books quickly became bestsellers, and the movie franchise made almost $1 billion. The first Twilight book came out in 2005, and the first movie in 2008. So it may seem like old news to us, but its success is what renewed interest in this particular type of supernatural story, where people with magical abilities or superpowers live alongside us, regular humans. Once Twilight was so successful, Many more books, movies, and other media have popped up with these themes, where kids or teenagers discover fantastical creatures or people with superpowers or magical abilities living among them, vampires, and 
yeah, werewolves, are only a small slice of that pie. Beyond just the appearance of Jacob and his werewolf family in the Twilight series, TV shows like Teen Wolf, which ran for six seasons and was based on a movie from the 1980s, show how well these supernatural abilities fit into the realm of teenage life. Our middle and high school years can be full of turmoil. In many ways, all of the most difficult parts of being a werewolf, not feeling in control of your body, not understanding your identity, feeling like you have to hide who you are or like the world is against you, could also be part of being a teenager. Remember last episode when we were asking about the origins of mermaids? Who was the first person who ever saw something in the water and thought, whoa, was that fish part human? Well, we can ask the same thing about werewolves, right? Who first thought to themselves, wolves are really scary. What if a human could, like, turn into a wolf? It feels like the human imagination naturally takes things in our environment, crafts stories about them as a way to ask about our place in the world, our status as human beings on a planet that also has plenty of other creatures. How are we the same as wolves or fish? How are we different? Are the qualities in humans that could be seen as more animal-like something to be celebrated or something to be feared? Is animal power something that we are always fighting to control within ourselves? Maybe in what we see as our advanced civilization, it's easy to think that we have rational minds and want to fit into society. But then again, don't you ever sometimes just feel the pull of the full moon? Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condon, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen with episode artwork by Sarah Stitches. Special thanks this week to our guests Al, Bella, Blythe, and Olivia. Are you enjoying the show so far? Make sure to tell your friends. You can also leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice. Or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, did you know that Unspookable is on Twitter? Look for us at I'm Unspookable. Have an idea for a future episode? Want to reach out about a potential partnership or sponsorship? You can contact the Unspookable team on our website at unspookable.com. Unspookable is part of the Soundsington Audio Network, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.